0: Chapter 2 St. George for England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. St. George for England, Chapter 2 The Hut in the Marshes. A week later, a party of knights and court gallants, riding across the fields without the walls, "'checked their horses to look at the struggle which was going on between two parties of boys. "'One, which was apparently the most powerful, had driven the other off from a heap of rubbish, "'which had been carried without the walls. "'Each party had a flag attached to a stick, and the boys were armed with clubs, "'such as those carried by the apprentice boys. "'Many of them carried mimic shields made of wood, "'and had stuffed their flat caps with wool or shavings, the better to protect their heads.' The smaller party had been driven from the heap, and the leader was urging them to make another effort to regain it. "'That is a gallant lad and a sturvy, my lord Devo, a boy of about ten years of age said. "'He bears himself like a young knight, and he has had some hard knocks, for—see, the blood is streaming down his face. One would scarcely expect to see these varlets of the city playing so roughly. "'The citizens have proved themselves sturdy fighters before now, my prince,' the other said. They are ever independent, and hold to their rights even against the king. The contingent which the city sends to the wars bears itself as well as any of those of the barons. See, the boy interrupted, they are going to charge again. The leader has himself seized the flag, and has swung his shield behind him, just as a knight might do, fleeting the stormers against a place of strength. Let us stop till we see the end of it. With a shout of, Oldgate! Oldgate! the leader of the assailants dashed forward, followed by his comrades, and with a rush reached the top of the heap. "'Well done!' the young prince exclaimed, clapping his hands. "'See how he lays about them with his club of his. There, he has knocked down the leader of the defenders, as if his club had been a battle-axe. "'Well done, young sir, well done!' "'But his followers waver.' the others are too strong for them stand you cowards rally round your leader and in his enthusiasm the young prince urged his horse forward to the scene of the conflict but the assailants were mastered few of them could gain the top of the heap and those who did so were beaten back from it by the defenders heavy blows were exchanged and blood flowed freely from many of their heads and faces for in those days boys thought less than they do now of hard knocks and manliness and courage were considered the first of virtues. The leader, however, stood still his ground on the crest, though hardly pressed on all sides, and used his club both to strike and parry, with a skill which aroused the warmest admiration on the part of the prince. In vain his followers attempted to come to his rescue. Each time they struggled up the heap, they were beaten back again by those on the crest." "'Yield thee, prisoner!' the assailants of their leader shouted, and the prince in his excitement echoed the cry. The lad, however, heard or heeded them not. He still kept his flag aloft in his left hand. With a sudden spring he struck down one of his opponents, plucked up their flag from the ground, and then forced his way back through his foes to the edge of the battleground. Then a heavy blow struck him on the temple, and still holding the flags he rolled senseless to the foot of the heap. The defenders, with shouts of triumph, were rushing down, when the Prince urged his horse forward. "'Cease!' he said authoritatively. "'Enough has been done, my young masters, and the sport is becoming a broil.' Hitherto the lads, absorbed in their strife, had paid but little heed to the party of onlookers, but, at the word, they at once arrested their arms, and, bearing their heads, stood still in confusion. "'No harm is done,' the Prince said though your sport is of the roughest and i fear that your leader is hurt he moves not lift his head from the ground the boy was indeed still insensible my lords the prince said to the knights who had now ridden up i fear that this boy is badly hurt and he is a gallant lad and of the spirit of a true knight in him citizen's son though he be my lord Deveau, Will you bid your squire ride at full speed to the tower, and tell Master Roger, the leech, to come here with all haste, and to bring such nostrums as may be needful for restoring the boy to life? The tower was but half a mile distant, but before Master Roger arrived Walter had already recovered consciousness, and was just sitting up when the leech hurried to the spot. You have arrived too late, Master Roger, the prince said. But I doubt not that a dose of cordials may yet be of use, for he is still dazed and the blow he got would have cracked his skull had it been a thin one the leech poured some cordial from a vial into a small silver cup and held it to the boy's lips it was potent and nigh took his breath away but when he had drunk it he struggled to his feet looking ashamed and confused when he saw himself the centre of so many knights of the court what is thy name good lad the prince asked uh, "'I am known as Walter Fletcher.' "'You were a brave lad,' the Prince said. "'And if you bear you as well as a man, as you did but now, "'I would wish no better to ride beside me in the day of battle. "'Should the time ever come, when you tire of the peaceable life of a citizen, "'and wish to take service in the wars, "'go to the Tower, and ask boldly for the Prince of Wales, "'and I will enroll you among my own men-at-arms. "'And I promise you—' that you shall have your share of fighting as stark as that of the assault on yon heap. Now, my lords, let us ride on. I crave your pardon for having so long detained you. Walter was some days before he could again cross London Bridge, to inform his friend Geoffrey of the honour which had befallen him, of being addressed by the Prince of Wales. During the interval he was forced to lie abed, and he was soundly rated by Master Giles, for again getting into mischief. Geoffrey was far more sympathetic, and said, Well, Walter, although I would not that Gaffer Giles heard me say so, I think you have had a piece of rare good fortune. It may be that you never have cause to recall the young prince's promise to him, but should you some day decide to embrace the calling of arms, you could wish for nothing better than to ride behind the Prince of Wales. He is... "'by all accounts of a most noble and generous disposition. "'And is said, young as he is, to be already highly skilled in arms. "'Men say that he would be a wise king and a gallant captain, "'such a one as a brave soldier might be proud to follow, "'and as the king will be sure to give him plenty of opportunities "'of distinguishing himself, "'those who ride with him may be certain of a chance of doing valorous deeds. "'I will go across the bridge to-morrow.' and will have a talk with master fletcher the sooner you are apprentice the sooner you will be out of your time and since madge married eight years since i have been lonely in the house and shall be glad to have you with me geoffrey ward found his friend more ready to accede to his request that walter should be apprenticed to him than he had expected bowyer indeed was a quiet man and the high spirits and somewhat turbulent disposition of his young charge gave him so much uneasiness, that he was not sorry the responsibility of keeping him in order should be undertaken by Geoffrey. Moreover, he could not but agree with the argument that the promise of the Prince of Wales offered a more favourable opportunity for Walter to enter upon the career of arms, and so, perhaps, some day, to win his way back to rank and honours, than could have been looked for. Therefore, on the following week... Walter was indentured to the armourer, and, as was usual at the time, left his abode in Oldgate, and took up residence with the master. He threw himself with his whole heart into the work, and by the time he was fifteen was on his way to becoming a skilful craftsman. His frame and muscles developed with labour, and he was now able to swing all save the very heaviest hammers in the shop. He had never abated in his practice at arms, and every day, when work was over, he and his master had a long bout together with cudgel or quarter-staff sword or axe walter of course used light weapons so quick was he with them that geoffrey ward acknowledged that he needed to put out all his skill to hold his own with his pupil but it was not alone with geoffrey that walter had an opportunity of learning the use of arms whenever a soldier returned from the walls came to have a weapon repaired by the armourer he would be sure of an invitation to come in the evening and take a stoop of ale and tell of all the battles and sieges he had gone through and in the course of the evening would be asked to have a bout of arms with the young apprentice whom geoffrey represented as being eager to learn how to use the sword as well as how to make it thus walter became accustomed to different styles of fighting Very few indeed of their visitors were nearly so well skilled with their arms as his master. Some of the soldiers were mortified at finding themselves unable to hold their own with a boy; others would take their reverses in good part, and would come again, bringing with them some comrade known to be particularly skilled with his weapons, to try out the temper of the armourer's apprentice. At the age of fifteen, Walter had won the prize at the sports, both for the best cudgel play and the best sword and buckler play among the apprentices, to the great disgust of many who had almost reached the age of manhood and were just out of their time. On Sundays, Walter always spent the day with Giles Fletcher and his wife, going to mass with them and walking in the fields, where, after service, the citizens much congregated. Since Walter had gone to work... He had taken no part in the fights and frolics of his former comrades. He was, in fact, far too tired at the end of his day's work to have any desire to do aught but to sit and listen to the tales of the wars, of the many old soldiers who pervaded the country. Some of these men were disabled by wounds or long service, but the greater portion were idle scamps who cared not for the hard blows and sufferings of a campaign, liking better to hang about taverns drinking, at the expense of those to whom they related fabulous tales of the gallant actions they had performed. Many, too, wandered over the country, sometimes in twos or threes, sometimes in large bands, robbing and often murdering travellers, or attacking lonely houses. When in one part or another their ill deeds became too notorious, the sheriffs would call out a posse of men, and they would be hunted down like wild beasts. It was not, however, easy to catch them, for the great tracts of forest still covered a large portion of the country, and offered them shelter. In the country round London these pests were very numerous, for here, more than anywhere else, was there a chance of plunder. The swamps on the south side of the river had an especially evil reputation. From Southwark to Putney, stretches a marshy country over which, at high tides, the river frequently flowed. Here and there were wretched huts, difficult of access and affording good hiding-places for those pursued by justice. Since searchers could be seen approaching a long way off, an escape could be made by paths across the swamp, known only to the dwellers there and where heavily armed men dared not follow. Further south, in the wild country round Westerham, where miles of heath and forest stretched away in all directions, was another noted place, where the robber vagrants mustered thickly, and the Sheriff of Kent had much trouble with them. The laws in those days were extremely severe, and death was the penalty of those caught plundering. The extreme severity of the laws, however, operated in favour of its breakers, since the sympathy of the people who had little to lose was with them, and unless caught red-handed in the act they could generally escape, since none save those who had themselves been robbed would say aught that might place the pursuers on their traces, or give testimony which would cost the life of a fellow-creature citizens of london were loud in their complaints against the discharged soldiers for it was upon them that the loss mainly fell and it was on their petition to the king that the sheriffs of middlesex and hartford essex surrey and kent were generally stirred up to put down the ill-doers sometimes these hunts were conducted in a wholesale way and the whole posse of a county would be called out then all found within its limits had not land or visible occupation, were collected. Any against whom charges could be brought home were hung without more ado, and the rest were put on board ship, and sent across the sea to the army. Sometimes, when they found the country becoming too hot for them, these men would take service with some knight or noble going to the war, anxious to take with him as strong a following as might be, and not too particular as to the character of his soldiers." Walter, being of an adventurous spirit, was sometimes want of a summer evening when his work was done, to wander across the marshes, taking with him his bow and arrows, and often bringing home a wild duck or two which he shot in the pools. More than one surly man had accosted him, and had threatened to knock him on the head if they again found him wandering that way. But Walter laughed at their threats, and seeing that although but an apprentice lad, he might be able to send an arrow as straight to the mark as another, they were content to leave him alone. One day, when he was well nigh in the heart of the swamp of Lambeth, he saw a figure making his way across. The hour was already late, and the night was falling, and the appearance of the man was so different from that of the usual denizens of the swamp that walter wondered what business there might be scarcely knowing why he did so walter threw himself down among some low brushwood and watched the approaching figure when he came near he recognized the face and saw to his surprise that it was a knight who had but the day before stopped at the armourer's shop to have two rivets put in his hauberk <laughs> He had particularly noticed him because of the arrogant manner in which he spoke. Walter had himself put in the rivets, and had thought, as he buckled on the armour again, how unpleasant a countenance was that of its wearer. He was a tall and powerful man, and would have been handsome had not his eyes been too closely set together. His nose was narrow, and the expression of his face reminded Walter of a hawk. He had now laid aside his helmet, and his figure was covered with a long cloak. "'He is up to no good,' Walter said to himself, "'for what dealings would a knight honestly have with the ruffians who haunt these swamps? "'It is assuredly no business of mine, but it may lead to an adventure, "'and I have had no real fun since I left Aldgate. "'I will follow, and see if I can get to the bottom of the mystery.' "'When he came close to the spot where Walter was lying,' The knight paused, and looked round as if uncertain of his way. For four or five minutes he stood still, and then gave a shout of, I'm free! at the top of his voice. It was answered by a different, Hello! And looking in the direction from which the answer had come, Walter saw a figure appear above some bushes, some four hundred yards distant. The knight at once directed his steps in that direction, and Walter crept cautiously after him. A uh, pest upon these swogs and quagmires!' the knight said angrily as he neared the other. "'Why didst not meet me and show me the way through as before?' "'I thought that as you were come once, you would be able to find your way hither again,' the man said. "'Had I thought you would have missed it, I would have come ten times as far, "'rather than had my name shouted all over the country. "'However, there's no one to hear. Did you shout thrice as loud, so no harm is done?' I thought I saw a figure a short time since the knight said. The man looked round in all directions. I see none, he said. And you may be mistaken, for the light is waning fast. It were ill for anyone I caught prying around here. But come in tonight. My hovel is not what your lordship is accustomed to, but we may as well talk there as here beneath the sky. The two men disappeared from Walter's sight. The latter, in much surprise, crept forward until he reached the spot where he had last seen the speakers he was unable to account for their disappearance then he saw that the spot although apparently a mere clump of bushes no higher than the surrounding country was really an elevated hummock of ground anyone might have passed close to the bushes without suspecting that aught lay among them in the centre however the ground had been cut away and a low doorway almost hidden by the bushes gave access into a half-subterranean hut the roof was formed of an old boat turned bottom upwards and this had been covered with brown turf it was an excellent place of concealment as searchers might have passed within a foot of the bushes without suspecting that aught lay concealed within them a clever hiding-place walter thought to himself no wonder the posse searched these swamps in vain this is the lowest and wettest part of the swamp and would be but lightly searched for none would suspect that there was a human habitation among these brown ditches and stagnant pools to his disappointment the lad could hear nothing of the conversation which was going on within the hut the murmur of voices came to his ear but no words were audible however he remained patiently thinking that perhaps as they came out a word might be said Would give him a clue as to the object of the mysterious interview between a knight and one who was evidently a fugitive from justice. His patience was rewarded. In the half hour which he waited, the night had fallen. A thick fog which was rising over the swamps rendered it difficult to discern anything at the distance of a few paces. You are quite sure you can manage it, a voice said as the two men issued from the hut there is no difficulty in managing it the other replied if the boat is punctual to the hour named it will be getting dusk then and if one boat runs into another no one need be surprised such accidents will happen they will be there just before nightfall the other said and you will know the boat by the white mantle the lady will wear the reward will be fifty pieces of gold of which you have received ten as earnest you can trust me and if the job be well done i shall take no count of the earnest money "'You may consider it as good as done,' the other replied. "'If the boat is there, the matter is settled. "'Now I will lead you back across the swamps. "'I would not give much for your life if you tried to find the way alone. "'Who would have thought, when you got me off from being hung after that little affair at Bruges, "'that I should be able to make myself useful to your worship? "'You may be sure,' the knight replied, "'that it was just because I foresaw that you might be useful, "'that I opened the doors of your cell that night. It is always handy in times like these.' to be able to lay one's hand on a man whom you can hang if you choose to open your mouth. Did it not strike you sir Knight, that it might enter my mind that it would be very advisable for me to free myself from one who stands towards me in that relation? Ah, certainly it did, the Knight replied, but as I happened to be able to make it for your interest to serve me, that matter did not trouble me i knew better than to bring money into this swamp of yours when i might be attacked by half a dozen ruffians like yourself and i took the precaution of informing peter the captain of my men-at-arms of the spot to which i was going bidding him in case i came not back to set a hue and cry on foot and hunt down all who might be found here with the especial description of your worthy self Walter could hear no more. He had taken off his shoes, and followed them at a distance. And their voices still acted as a guide to him through the swamp, but he feared to keep too close, as, although the darkness would conceal his figure, he might at any moment tread in a pool or ditch, and so betray his presence. Putting his foot each time to the ground with the greatest caution, he moved quietly after them. They spoke little more but their heavy footsteps on the swampy ground, were a sufficient guidance for him. At last these ceased suddenly. A few words were spoken, and then he heard returning steps. He drew aside a few feet and crouched down, saw a dim figure pass through the mist, and then resumed his way. The ground was firmer now, and replacing his shoes he walked briskly on. As he neared the higher ground, along which the road ran, he heard two horsemen galloping away in the distance he now turned his face east and after an hour's walking he reached the armorer's why walter you're late the smith said the men are in bed this hour or more and i myself can hardly keep awake where hast thou been my boy i have been in the swamp and lost my way walter replied it is a bad neighbourhood lad and worse are the people who live there if i had my way the whole posse should be called out and the marshes searched from end to end and all found there should be knocked on head and thrown into their own ditches there would be no fear of any honest man coming to his end thereby but now to bed lad you can tell me all about it to-morrow but we have a rare day's work before us and the fire must be alight at daybreak on his way back walter had debated with himself whether to inform his master of what had happened he was however bent upon having an adventure on his own account and it was a serious thing in those days for an apprentice lad to bring an accusation against a noble the city would not indeed allow even an to be overridden although Geoffrey ward's forge stood beyond the city walls it was yet within the liberties the city allowing its craftsmen to open shops just outside the gates and to enjoy the same privileges as if dwelling within the walls on the following afternoon walter asked leave to cease work an hour earlier than usual the armourer was surprised since this was the first time that such a thing had happened since the lad had worked for him you up to walter some mischief i'll be bound go lad you work so steadily you have well earned more than an hour's holiday should you want walter crossed the bridge and seeking out four or five of his old companions begged them to bring their bows and clubs and rejoin him at the stairs by london bridge to their laughing inquiries whether he meant to go a shooting of fish he told them to ask no questions until they joined him as soon as work was over the boys gathered at the steps where walter had already engaged a boat. There was a mocking inquiry from the watermen standing about as to where they were going shooting. Walter answered with some light chaff, and two of the party taking oars. They started up the river. "'Now, I will tell you what we are bent on,' Walter said. "'From some words I overheard, I believe that some of the ruffians over in the marshes are this evening going to make an attack upon a boat with a lady in it coming down the river. We will be on the spot.' and can give them such a reception as they do not expect do you know who the lady is walter i have not the least idea i only caught a few words and may be wrong still it will do no harm shall i be mistaken the tide was running down strongly for there had been a good deal of rain and during the preceding week and all night it had poured heavily it was fine now but the stream was running down thick and turbid and it needed all the boys' efforts to force the worry against it. They rode by turns, all were fairly expert at the exercise, for in those days the Thames was at once the great highway and playground of London, To the walls below the bridges' ships brought the rich merchandise of Italy and the Low Countries, while from above the grain needed for the wants of the great city was floated down in barges from the west.' passing the temple the boys rode by the green banks and fields as far as westminster which at that time was almost a rival of the city for here were the abbey and great monastery here was the king's palace and court and the houses of many of his nobles then they went along by the low shores of millbank keeping a sharp lookout for boats going down the stream it was already getting dark for walter had not allowed for the strength of the stream and he was full of anxiety Lest they should arrive too late. End of Chapter Two.